0: Welcome to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. For a little over a year, the American Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, has been led by a man named Robert Califf. Very few people seem to know much about Califf or his background, and there is very little critical reporting on this man, despite the power he currently wields over significant aspects of American public health policy. During his confirmation hearings last year, there were a few stories here and there, noting Califf's investments in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries, as well as his long-standing ties to big pharma and how this might present a conflict of interest. Yet there is a deeper problem with Califf that goes far beyond these conflicts of interest that more often than not are the norm within the U.S. federal government and on Capitol Hill. This is Califf's second stint as FDA commissioner, having previously held the post toward the end of Barack Obama's second term. After he left that position when Donald Trump took office in early 2017, Caliph joined Google, becoming the Silicon Valley giant's top strategist for its forays into healthcare, specifically for Google's health-focused subsidiary, Verily Life Sciences. Ever since then, Califf has been at the vanguard of the effort to kickstart the so-called Fourth Industrial Revolution, or 4IR, in healthcare, and this has extended into the decisions he has overseen over the past year as head of the FDA. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Califf himself is a major evangelist for the 4IR in healthcare and is on record stating that he shared the 4IR vision of World Economic Forum Chairman Klaus Schwab well before his notoriety during the COVID era. Per Schwab and his allies, the 4IR, particularly as it relates to healthcare, is about the merging of our physical, digital, and biological selves, essentially transhumanism by a different name— Troublingly, as FDA commissioner, Califf is already creating regulatory loopholes for devices that will bring this dark vision to fruition, including brain machine interfaces, neuromodulation devices, and surveillance wearables, among others. He is also doing the same with other 4IR health-focused technologies, including gene therapies and much more. For those Americans who are concerned about the push to inject the 4IR into the American healthcare system and into our bodies, Robert Califf is the man to watch. Joining me today to discuss Caliph and the deeper problems here is Maddie Bannon, investigator, researcher, and contributor to the Last American Vagabond substack. Last year, Maddie published a deep dive on Caliph called Brave New Real World Data on the TLAV substack, which focused on Caliph's time before he became FDA commissioner and his love affair with the World Economic Forum and the idea of the fourth industrial revolution. I highly recommend anyone interested in Caliph and the broader issues at play here give Maddie's piece a read. With that being said, welcome to Unlimited Hangout, Maddie. It's great to have you here.
1: Hello, thanks for
0: having me. Absolutely. So as I mentioned uh, just a minute ago, it's been acknowledged, right, that Robert Califf has a concerning conflict of interest with big pharma, which is, um, as you note in your article, you know, Bernie Sanders, among others, have challenged him on this. So I guess before we get into some of the other key aspects about Califf here, particularly about um, the 4IR and things like that, let's talk a little bit about his, his connections to big pharma.
1: Sure. Um, well, first of all, is Gusto Trial, which was a mega trial over forty thousand participants in the study of cardio infarction, um, which is a heart attack, uh, was funded a lot by Bayer, Sanofi, GlaxoSmithKline, all all the big names. Um, so he's been receiving funding from the big pharmaceutical industries for uh, the majority of his career. Most of his papers that he's issued, and he, he, a lot of people, uh, when they're interviewing him are sure to make note of that he's one of the most cited, um, medical writers in the field. Um, they're, they're sure to make note of, that, uh, of his many papers, it's like over 1,200 that he's um, published. They're all punctuated by very long conflict of interest. Um, statements that lists you know, dozens and dozens of pharmaceutical companies.
0: So um, he has a very cozy relationship with all of them. Right. But I, I guess um, one of the things I want to talk about today is that, um, and what I've talked about in some of my work over the past uh, couple years, is that big pharma and big tech have essentially been coming together, creating a lot of joint ventures. And so what um, has been sort of emerging over the same time frame is, you know, whereas there was previously this well-known revolving door between, you know, the FDA and and Big Pharma and other, you know, healthcare-focused agencies like HHS and Big Pharma, now there's a revolving door between those health agencies and big tech firms like Google. So Caliph is one of these guys, of course. Uh, but there's actually quite a few. So if you go to the um Google Health About Us page, uh, now that Caliph is, you know, more or less not officially a big part of it, but as you note in your piece, he still is very much connected to Google Health and its initiatives there. Uh, But their new chief health officer is a lady named Karen DeSalvo. She was uh, formerly the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and Assistant Secretary for Health in the Obama administration, uh, and prior to that worked in HHS. Um, And then we have uh, Dr. Michael Howell, who is at Google Health, chief clinical officer and deputy chief health officer. He's um, an advisor to the Centers for Disease Control. And then one of the newest hires um, at Google Health is is a man named Bakul Patel, who's senior director of global digital health strategy. And I guess the relationship with regulatory agencies uh, and he was uh he'd been at the fDA for decades before joining Google most recently as the fda's chief digital health officer of Global strategy and innovation. So there's a lot of these guys, but of course, probably the most important one to point out would be caliph um so um as I mentioned in my intro, Calph was um of course at the fDA uh, during the Obama administration, and then he joined Google, so I guess maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, his time at at Google and why that's significant.
1: Sure. So um, Califf served as the commissioner for the FDA between the years of 2016 and 2017. Um, That was his first stint under the Obama administration. Um, During that time, the 21st Century Cures Act was passed, um, which is a very important piece of legislation that kind of allows for all of the, you know, very... Uh, new breakthrough devices and uh, EUAs and the waiver of informed consent for minimal risk trials. So that was passed during his time there. But he did leave in 2017. That's when he went back to Duke for a couple of years um, and he founded Duke Forge. But in 2019, he joined Verily Life Sciences um, as their, their head of uh, like health strategy and policy. Um, during that time, he headed Project Baseline which that is uh, basically, um, you know, a a huge mega trial um, along the lines of the things that he's already very interested in, uh, in his projects at Duke, including the Duke Clinical Research Initiative and the clinical, uh, what is it, Um, CTTI, which is Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, where. They're aiming to use digital infrastructure, um, passively collected patient data, including electronic health records. Um, so uh, Project Baseline at Fairleigh, uh was kind of a uh, replication of that at a major private company who he said has the funding to do it right, um, which is what he is... Uh, on on record noting is very important. Um, He wants as much money as he can get to get these studies to be what he actually wants. Um, So Verily, you know, they recruit people to join these studies. Uh, They had a wearable, a proprietary watch that is by prescription only, that sends, uh, you know, biometric data back to Google for uh, to be studied, uh, they studied a number of things, including you know oral health and uh, how that relates to overall health, and uh, uh, you know the the impacts of um, uh, daylight savings time on your restiveness and overall well being. Hmm. They stu- they studied um, a number of um, very trite things, you know that, that that I don't think really. Not a lot of these study results, while they are posted on clinicaltrials.gov, uh, the results are not posted there, so I'm not sure what the results were. But uh, they also study things like depression. Um, so, yeah, um that's basically their their whole thing is to continuously monitor and collect data because uh, on the people that are involved in their studies, because their goal is to map human health. They said. We already have mapped yeah. the Earth, um, and now it is time to map human health, and that's kind of what
0: they're after. Yikes. Yeah, so they've mapped human health, and they contract with, like, intelligence agencies in the military so they can, you know, <laughs> like, drone bomb or find whoever they want, right? And so now we gotta got to map the human body, too. Well, that's fun. Okay, so... Um, one thing I really found interesting uh as a as a major theme in your article is this about clinical trials specifically about Caliph. So as you noted, you know, he he made a name for himself with this um I guess, Gusto trial in the in the mid 90s. Uh, but since then, he's essentially been trying to revolutionize clinical trials and how they're performed. And so a lot of the stuff you touched on, including Project Baseline, I'd like to get in um, into a little more detail of those specific initiatives like that and other ones you mentioned a little bit later in this episode. But for now, I wanted to bring up that you noted in your piece that a lot of Calif's career, specifically his time at Google and this current stint as FDA commissioner, He's been spending it, quote, tirelessly dedicated to the task of removing the obstacles facing the 4IR. So I think, you know, since the 4IR is a really key part of understanding who Caliph is, why he was nominated by the Biden administration to be in this particular role at this point of time, it's all very important to understanding those issues, right? So if it's cool with you, let's go over, you know, for people who may not know what the Fourth Industrial Revolution is. uh, What are Caliph's stated views about the Phenomenon and what are some of his roles in uh, at the FDA and Google that he's played in promoting these policies?
1: Sure, uh, one of his uh, greatest achievements, according to him, is convincing then President Obama that the Fourth Industrial Revolution was real and happening and very important. Oh. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> he's very he's very much um, a fan, and he thinks that it is important. He thinks that that it will be happening, and basically, what the whole concept is is that our bodies and then uh, eventually our minds will eventually merge with technology uh, and the internet by proxy so um this is the the concept is the brainchild of Klaus schwab who runs the world economic forum so you know the whole idea of the fourth industrial revolution is to gather as much data passively generated by either people or the environment via wearable devices um, electronic health records uh, insurance claims you know the devices in your car your social media to get it uh, to make you your digital self um, they'd like to both merge your physical self with your digital self into one thing so <laughs> it's um, totally inseparable um, but he you know he cites Klaus Schwab and uh, the fourth Industrial Revolution, book that he wrote in his papers academic papers um he talks about it frequently in interviews and and things like that yeah uh that's really his his contribution is he i mean he's been he's stated that he's gone to the world world economic forum and i'm
0: sure he Mm -hmm. uh you know
1: mingles among the other acolytes there but yeah he's um, openly
0: said that that he um you know attended the WEF and was like, wow, these guys are really on to something in a video I saw of him where he's doing some Google interview series. I mean, he talks very glowingly about um, all of the stuff in, in the WEF itself. And of course, as you note in the piece, some of the stuff he's overseen is, uh, you know, follows the WEF's favorite model, the public-private partnership. So he seems very much Um, on board with a lot of this stuff. And what's particularly concerning to me is that a lot of these 4IR technologies, so like, you know, the way it's described, it's something that's not just going to revolutionize healthcare, right? It's supposed to revolutionize every sector of society, society itself change the meaning of what it is to be human and and all other sorts of stuff. But the way they seem to be uh, going to get sort of this, uh, their foot in the door here. Um, Is is through healthcare, And, you know, as I wrote for T-Lab a few years ago, that particular policy has its ties with Google going way back to the, um, you know, well before COVID with uh, the Eric Schmidt led National Security uh, Commission on Artificial Intelligence, of course, Eric Schmidt being the longtime head of Google. And that particular commission uh, said that the best way to get AI mass adopted uh, by the American populace uh, was to have it sort of shoehorned into healthcare policy. And they essentially uh, framed this as a national security imperative. And so on this commission, you know, you have big tech. And you have the national security state, you know, mainly the military and, and intelligence communities. And this is their their view, you know, the most powerful actors really in the United States today, that it's a national security imperative to have basically the the four IR types of technologies implemented into our healthcare system first as a way of having them spread throughout society. And they frame this as a, as, you know, necessary to counter China's AI supremacy and hegemony that will, you know, allegedly happen if we don't. Surpass China in terms of the mass adoption of these types of technologies. But oddly enough, you know, if you really want to believe (laughs) it, take national security agencies at their word, you know, that this is about China, not about like longstanding agendas of theirs to mass surveillance, you know, uh, of mass surveillance and things like that, you know, obviously that's that's up to you and everyone can (laughs) can have their own opinion about that. Uh, but it seems like Robert Califf's role here and more, you know, even bigger than Califf really is the role of Google in all of this. It's definitely something I think more people um should be paying attention to at the very least. So um, one interesting thing that you bring up in in this article is about Robert Califf, and you already mentioned it a little bit, that he was um, the founding director of the Duke Clinical Research Institute, which uh, predates his time working at the FDA, but it sort of saw him partner up with the FDA um, while he was at Duke, where I believe he's uh, been for a a decent amount of his uh, academic career. And uh, this is sort of a precursor to a lot of the stuff that he's overseen since he got involved with the FDA and, and overtly um, with Google as well. So, can you tell us a little, um, you know, maybe a little more detail about um, this Clinical Research Institute he helped create and the initiative that you mentioned early, earlier, the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, they're they both run along the same lines, uh, and they, the gold standard for clinical trials is a randomized control trial. Um, so they're looking. For alternative means, because though to do a randomized controlled trial, it costs a lot of money. Um, you have to hire staff. You have to have you have to recruit participants. You have to you know apply the intervention or the placebo and make sure that you're tracking all the information that's associated with that. You have to have people enter that data and then make sure it's correct. Um, and have like an actual trial site and have people go to and from and compensate them for that. So it's it takes a long time and it's um, costs a lot of money. So the, the aim, as far as I can tell, um, and from writings that he and others have uh, written about, you know, uh, real world evidence generation and real world data in place of randomized control trials is that it, it cuts down on cost significantly, uh, maybe up to 30%. And you can definitely get it done um, a little bit faster. So if you already have a pool of people whose information that you already have access to for instance, like I mentioned, the, uh, you know, cell phone data, electronic health records, insurance claims, all that. You don't need to bother um, recruiting the participants. You don't need to wait for that information to come in, uh, especially for the low risk uh, trials that, you, again, you don't need informed consent for those anymore. Thanks to the 21st Century Cures Act that was passed in 2016. So you can get a lot of things done faster and uh, more cheaply if you use information that's, like he says, siloed, um, uh, siloed and in, uh, not interoperable. Um, and what Duke Clinical Research Institute and and the CTTI are aiming to do is advocate for those those data to be unsiloed so that they're free, they're shareable, um, and also to advocate for trials that use that kind of data instead of the randomized control trial uh, right. of, the, of the past and that uh, traditional sort of trials.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what this means for, you know, the average person that doesn't necessarily like, you know, research these kind of uh, worlds very much so, like the the way basically the way that medical and clinical trials have been conducted, uh, pretty much in the vast majority of the modern era, right? This initiative was about essentially replacing those trials with this real-world evidence paradigm, right? And you have a really helpful graphic um, about what real-world data and real real-world evidence is um, in this piece, and, and you know. Uh, that you wrote and some other, um, you know, descriptions of it that you provide in the piece. Uh, but the graphic's interesting because it reminds me a lot of sort of, of the World Economic Forum's policy paper, I think from 2018, about digital ID, um, where essentially all these different things are interconnected. And there's really like this centralized database for data about you. And so what's what's really crazy about it to me is that, you know, it has like, you know, you're in the center, right? And all these different types of data that you generate, are, are coming off, you know, from you and that this data is going to be used to replace a, a clinical trial for to prove the effectiveness of of drugs or wearables or, you know, brain machine interfaces, you know, all this type of stuff. And it has um, stuff like, you know, disease registries, things you'd expect, right? Like a, a electronic health records, Uh, survey data, pharmaceutical data, like what types of medicines you take and then the wearable stuff. But it also has stuff like consumer data, which is your buying habits, what you buy online right? But also social media data, you know, who, what you're interacting with, uh, what you're saying um, online, uh, what type of information you're reading and, and viewing, which is interesting in the context of something I'd like to talk about a bit later, uh, which is uh, Robert Califf's mission to have the FDA play a major role in preempting and debunking misinformation, which is, which is interesting there. But um, the idea that all of this data, this monitoring of stuff that has never really been used in existing randomized clinical trials and stuff like social media data and just sort of data harvesting this stuff uh, from people without their consent and using that in lieu of randomized clinical trials um, is just totally insane. And I I just, uh, in this, you know, the people that wanted to put him in charge of the FDA obviously knew that he was in charge of uh, these types of initiatives and that he was, uh, you know, essentially there to create... um, the regulatory, I guess, I I guess, you know, I'm calling it a regulatory loophole, but really it's a complete alteration of the existing regulatory paradigm. Uh, to totally just replace it, so that all of this uh, fourth industrial revolution technology can be fast tracked and mass, you know, for mass implementation, mass adoption by the masses. But it doesn't necessarily have to use the previous paradigm to prove any safety, any effectiveness under past metrics, right? Um, I don't know your thoughts on that. Maybe you disagree. <laughs>
1: um. I mean, the the problem is that you can't really verify whether or not the information that you're receiving is good or bad. Um, they're trying to come up with ways to do that, but I, I don't think that that's really feasible. Um, so, you know, the the one way that um, Caliph has, you know, he, he gave a talk at Google. It was like a Google Talks event. It's on YouTube. Um, he mentions that the one way, well, at least one of the ways that we'll find out if these things go wrong is if they become catastrophic. So um, that's that's when we'll know how to regulate these kinds of trials is if there's like a, ma- a massive safety or efficacy catastrophic um, situation that occurs. As he, he says, that's how things have gone in the past. But um, you know, when you're talking about mega trials with you know uh, over forty thousand people, like he's already done, that's I don't know if the benefit risk calculus. Really makes sense there. Um, so, and, and to be honest, I don't think that these real-world evidence-based trials are going to supersede randomized control trials entirely. I think that they are using them to fast-track certain sort of medications and devices, um, at least through phase one and phase two trials, um, and and they're doing they're applying it to post-market studies as well. So, as far as actually it, when the when um, medical devices or drugs are have some sort of risk to them, I think they're still applying the randomized controlled trials. Um, but they're you know they're they're u- they're implementing and using this as much as possible to cut down on costs and getting those things to market as, as quickly as possible. And another thing too that I've I've been thinking about is that I uh, he uses a lot of language of. Um, these being important and necessary so that those drugs and devices can be made available to the public as you know more quickly. And that's kind of the, the um, pill that he gives you to swallow alongside the um, con- near constant surveillance that he alleges will be occurring and that is occurring um, because people need these life saving you know, devices now. They don't need them in five to seven years.
0: But really, you're
1: asking the consumer to adopt all the risk there.
0: Well, we heard this with COVID, right? The same thing, like a, Mm -hmm. a, a change of the regulatory paradigm for the purpose of, oh, we need to get this out faster. So we have to produce a vaccine on the timeline that's completely unprecedented, and we have to uh, change how trials are conducted. And, you know, as as I've noted in my work and other people have noted, um, you know, a lot of these companies like Moderna, for example, couldn't get a product to market under the previous regulatory paradigm. And so the emergency use authorization um, and a lot of these, uh, you know, emergency measures were used to sort of totally change how a lot of these trials for these vaccines were conducted. Um, and you know because of the you know professed sense of urgency um that, you know that this idea that you know the risk is being taken on by the person that receives um you know the vaccine instead of having you know the f d a saying, yeah, we can say it well, I mean, they did say it was safe, right, but you know that wasn't necessarily reflected um by the trials, and it was all justified by speed and you know, what you're seeing here is them using speed as as the justification and also cost reduction. but you know it's it's troubling stuff and and I, I may have misspoken earlier. What I meant is that um, so in your piece, you were talking about CTTI, this transformation clinical trial transformation initiative, and you said it it seeks to do is to use real world evidence in place of evidence. Uh, generated by RCTs. And so I sort of see um, what Robert Califf is doing now at the FDA sort of as uh, not necessarily trying to replace, um, you know, eliminate randomized clinical trials entirely, but when it comes to a lot of these um, more like novel devices, not necessarily things like vaccines and like pharmaceutical products that are more traditional, like uh, pills and in and, and other types of injections and stuff it seems to be um some of these other devices whether they're wearables or implantables really also um, are sort of being treated under this uh, this new paradigm this idea of like the remote clinical trial it's not necessary to physically monitor and observe patients and just basically use the data that's collected by their interaction with uh, these devices and, and the connectivity. And all of that is essentially replacing uh, traditional trials. And to me, that seems sort of like a way of sidestepping some of the traditional metrics for these particular devices, which, of course, those devices um are obviously necessary to get the four IR really rolling in the healthcare space, right? Uh, particularly with the, um, you know, the brain machine interface or some of these neuromodulation devices, sort of get the nervous system of the human body connected to the internet, right? Um. <laughs> yeah,
1: what What's funny about that is, um, there the breakthrough devices designation given by the FDA to uh, medical devices is really for Devices that are, uh, are to treat life threatening or irreversible diseases. Um, which when you think of a com- brain computer interface, sure, you can maybe make the claim that our brain computer interface can treat paralysis or help the blind see or the, you know, um, stroke victims have, uh, more functioning sides of their body. Um, yeah, that's fine, but they also will be applied for many many other uses so <laughs> it just seems to me that uh, companies like um BlackRock and uh, Neuro- uh, technologies and synchron and neuralink etc are using this you know this claim that their brain computer interface will be used to treat life-threatening and, and irreversible diseases as a way to get get their stuff through the door and pri- and prioritize that at fda so that it can be through more quickly um you know disregarding all the other applications that it may be used for and it will most likely be used for and that's probably what their what their primary aim is at the end of the day
0: so even though you mentioned that like the breakthrough device designation technically is sort of like reserved for these devices that are like for you know irreversible you know diseases terminal illnesses and conditions stuff like that um it's being given to a lot of things that don't follow under these metrics so um A recent uh, FDA breakthrough device designation was given to this company called Suma, which is very much, you know, it's basically Soma, but with a second O. Um, And it it received that designation for its innovative at-home depression treatment device, uh, which it describes basically, well, in the picture, in the article anyway, it's basically like uh, electrodes you wear on like a weird little beanie thing over your head, and it like Um, electrodoxia, I guess, certain parts of the brain to, like, make you not depressed, right? But there's a lot of other treatments for depression, right? And breakthrough device designation is supposed to be for conditions that don't have existing treatments, you know? So this is one of those examples of sort of the FDA sort of applying this, uh, designation to places where it doesn't really need to be given. Right. And so, you know, if you look at the, this example and a few others, it seems pretty clear that, um, uh, the current FDA, um, uh, modus operandi as it comes to this, as it relates to this particular designation, it seems to just sort of be, uh, giving it to companies that, you know, have, uh, some of these 4IR-related devices or, you know, neuromodulation stuff specifically um, and trying to get them onto the market as quickly as possible, allegedly for the benefit of consumers. But, you know, when you get these sort of special designations, you're allowed to sort of skip a lot of the, um, you know, the regulations and and trials and other requirements that, you know, competitors would have to um, complete. You know, competitors that don't receive this particular uh, designation.
1: Yeah, right. Um, I mean, what the breakthrough device designation also allows for novel medical devices. They call it de novo. So there's no, you know, to be a de novo device, there's not any legally marketed predicate device. So something like it. Um, As far as I know, Suma has at least some competitors. I saw other sort of beanie electrode. Uh, app applications and devices a lot like it, um, so maybe they're competing for that space. My my uh, initial thought when I saw the um the, their device, the head the head cap and the electrodes, is I thought we had already kind of tried electro shock therapy for you know mental illness and that it didn't really work too well and also made people a little bit uh, weird and not it was not good. Um, so I I think I I mean I understand that it's a little bit more low voltage. But uh, it doesn't seem to be too original of an idea. (laughs) Um, But Mm -hmm. yeah, as far as, let's see. Yeah, they use a technique called transcranial direct current stimulation. And really neuromodulation is, well, there are a few different definitions that I was able to find. Um, But they're mostly that that the International Neuromodulation Society defines it as uh, the alteration of nerve activity through de- targeted direct, uh, delivery of a stimulus, um, through electric or chemical agents um, in, at certain sites. So we have a lot of companies that are looking at the spleen, um, which is, uh, oh, dang, what is that nerve called? There's a, there's a certain nerve that that originates at the spleen, um, and it's part of the autonomic nerve system. And oh. they're, they're looking at that for... Um, Parkinson's to stop the hand tremors. Yeah. So you have a lot of people looking at that for so that. And they also are trying to use it for rheumatoid arthritis um, mm-hmm. and, and things like that.
0: Yeah. So one of the um, companies uh, pursuing uh, neuromodulation of that particular nerve you mentioned, I guess the splenic nerve, um, is uh, for rheumatoid arthritis, is Galvani Bioelectronics, which is uh, an interesting company in the context of Robert Califf because it's a joint venture of GlaxoSmithKline and Verily, which is Google's health subsidiary that Robert Califf um, has uh, been involved with over the years. And they're one of the ones that sort of got this. um, uh, I think they've already started implanting it into people, but they have a lot of ambitions for these neuromodulation advices, which is basically to alter how the nervous system functions, whether it's targeting specific um, nerves or many nerves or groups of nerves or the entire brain. That's sort of the um whole ambition there and of course verily is also the people behind project baseline which is something that you mentioned earlier and i think not enough people have paid attention to this and it's a really crazy thing when you think about it so um there's this one there's a a few things that have been written on baseline you know from mainstream sources um so uh, one summary offered here in which you sort of have touched on already and what you've talked about it says uh The Verily Baseline Health Study launched in 2017, so that's around the same time that Califf was at Google and uh, being their top health strategist, right? Um, It was launched in 2017 with the goal of mapping human health by collecting data from a variety of sources, including self-reported data, smartphone, or wearable recorded data, or through electronic health records. And as you mentioned earlier, because of the uh, the Cures Act, um, some of that recorded data by smartphone or wearables, that data can be obtained without informed consent. Anyway, so it says um, uh, essentially a lot of this this baseline health study and the broader baseline health platform is all about changing, again, how clinical trials uh, function, right? So, Um, I first heard about Project Baseline during the COVID stuff because they were using it specifically for that. Um, And a bunch of weird stuff was going on with uh, Verily and and COVID tests, including having people, uh, forcing people who took uh, COVID-19 tests in in the San Francisco area, which were being managed. I think uh, the government there uh, had contracted Google or Verily to do this. And they were requiring people that got COVID tests to basically link their test results to their Google account. And if they didn't have a Google account, they had to make one in order to participate, which is pretty um, insane. But essentially, what it sounds like to me is that uh, Project Baseline is just trying to gather an insane amount of um, of data on people for all different types of purposes. And essentially, the goal, they say, is to collect comprehensive health information with the goal of better understanding health in the transition to disease, and it's important to keep in mind that at the same time this has been going on, and when this was launched, uh, is when p- the Pentagon and Google teamed up for this sort of predictive healthcare thing. So basically, um, using all of this data, um, all of these, uh, this massive cache that the military holds from like the the veteran and, and military health systems of uh, x-ray images and things like that to train AI so that the AI could offer predictive cancer diagnoses. So basically the AI is like, oh, well, we've decided that you'll develop cancer in five years, but you don't actually have cancer, you know? So it's all of this sort of, you know, what I've, uh, what me and uh, people like Ryan Christian have sort of referred to as the pre-crime paradigm applied to healthcare. So basically you're going to be told that you're going to develop this disease by AI or or, or some of these Uh, different devices or by, you know, this data accumulation, and they're going to decide... Uh, They're going to tell you what you're likely to develop before you develop it and then go and offer you all these different weird therapeutics, whether it's stuff like, you know, mRNA stuff or gene therapy or, um, you know, these neuromodulation devices or wearables or stuff that interacts, you know, with your nervous system or, or changes how it functions and all sorts of stuff, even though at that particular moment you don't actually need it. It's being framed as preventative, right? And this is, again, Google with the military doing this, and you have them, of course, doing it um, in all their sorts of of different guises. But ultimately, you know, it's about, per them, about healthcare, right? But it seems to be a lot more than that, if you ask me. But, you know.
1: Yeah, and Caleb, um, in an interview, he mentions that this sort of, you know, influence, subtle influence over people in regards to their health is you know, justifiable because it's already happening and it's been happening for a while through, you know, private market advertisements and cookies on your computer and tracking what you buy and figuring out what you might be interested in buying and then presenting that to you. So he's just, and and he thinks that doing that uh, isn't necessarily good. It's not getting people things that they need or make them have a happier, healthier life. Um, so what he's saying is, well, that's bad. When we do it, it's good because we're trying to help people live longer and be less ill. So we're going to track you in just the same way. We're going to nudge you and influence you in just the same way. But our ends are delivering those drugs and those medical devices that you act you, know, you need, right? And you'll be convinced that you need them because we have all the data. Um, and we'll present to you evidence that we found and um, tell you how this will help you in your life um before you are even considering you know going to the doctor about it so like you said it is it is preemptive and he thinks that it's totally fine um there there's good guys and bad guys and the bad guys are the people who sell you clothes and food and and stuff like that (laughs) but they're good because they sell you pharmaceutical drugs and medical devices
0: <sighs> yeah crazy so um I so in your particular article uh in talking about the cures act, uh, you sort of mentioned that Calph had a role in getting that uh, certain aspects of that legislation um you know in place you know involved in, in to an extent in the drafting and lobbying process for this um particular law. And so I found it interesting too that rolled within that act uh, were things like the brain initiative and uh, Biden's cancer moonshot initiative, which um, you know, is was basically the basis for Biden's recent creation of ARPA-H, which was previously uh, shopped around to the Trump administration under the name of HARPA or basically a health focused uh, DARPA equivalent. And I actually did a podcast um a few months ago, about one of the guys behind the Brain Initiative and how he uh, has been very active where I live, down in South America, in Chile, and getting Chile to be the first country uh, to establish what uh, he, what are called neuro rights, uh, this idea of uh, trying to protect your individuality and sort of this paradigm where brain-machine interfaces and all of this are are very common. And essentially, um, you know what, I sort of talked about this likely being in that particular podcast, instead of it being framed as protecting you from all the bad stuff these devices could do to you making you lose your sense of self among other things um is really about creating the necessary framework and public justifications uh to get these types of devices on the market not necessarily for healthcare related purposes but also for commercial purposes because people like Elon Musk at like Neuralink and stuff you know on one hand they're saying and I guess Synchron too probably and some of these other firms doing the same thing you know on one hand they're framing this as oh this is a health device to help people that are paralyzed walk and and all and and blind people see and all of that but at the same time you know Elon Musk is like pretty open that Neuralink is uh, intended to be like a used for commercial purposes people could use it to play video games and stuff and you know even some of the animal trials they promoted were like monkeys with the Neuralink implant playing video games with their brain and stuff not paralyzed monkeys walking again you know what I mean so it it just seems, um, you know, a bit different than it's being than it's being sold. Sure,
1: I think you know, for the brain computer interfaces, the only uh, there's there's a difference between imagination and reality, and you can you know postulate and say that our our BCI is going to help people walk or see or whatever. Um, I don't see any evidence of that, at least as far as like, the initial um, um, studies and videos footage and, and things like that that there's no evidence for that's actually happening as far as um uh what is able to be accomplished is that you can control like so if you're a total uh if you're 100 paraplegic uh, and you have no way to move your hands or interface with the computer you can do so they say quote unquote simply by thinking and while that may have medical application you know if you're trying to help people who are paralyzed sure but why can't anybody else use it for that. Um so it's just to pass it under the guise and get these sort of fast tracks to market, seemingly to um preempt your competition and kind of monopolize that market as soon as you can. Um which is I would say Synchron is definitely much further ahead than than anybody else on that front. Um mm-hmm. that seems to be what it's actually for because I don't I don't um you know the brain computer interfaces Uh, there's, there's just not enough evidence out there to suggest that it's actually going to help people, um, with, with their claims of, you know, the irreversibly debilitating diseases or the life-threatening diseases. Um, there, there is one company it's called, um, let's see, I think it's called like Neuro, Neuroleaf or Neuroleaf. That's what it is. Uh, they have this, um, uh, brain computer interface that links with an exoskeleton that helps people who have you know have had a stroke move the hand that's not working anymore that makes more sense um but yeah it seems more just to try to get these things on the market as quickly as possible under the guise of, of helping people as is
0: you know, yeah And what I mentioned earlier, there's this whole, you know, ulterior motive coming from the highest levels of the national security state and people like Eric Schmidt trying to get this stuff out there on the market as quickly as possible because they see it as part of this big tech war with China, right? which is also pretty crazy. And you know, a key point I wanna make here too. So I'm sure people are familiar with, you know, my analysis and other people's analysis of, of statements made by by people tied up with the World Economic Forum and, and big, you know, four IR evangelists, like you all know a Harari, who basically say that like the whole wearable paradigm, like getting wearables on everybody, is the red line uh that will, you know, result in the ushering in of what he calls digital dictatorships you know, basically the surveillance of what's going on, not just inside your body, but inside your mind. And I think this is all kind of interesting when you're looking at the big players here in the context of, um, a lot of how this mass surveillance is also, you know, tied into this this effort to launch a war on domestic terror um, and mass surveil everybody and sort of usher in the, the paradigm they tried to do after 9-11 with things like DARPA's total information awareness and stuff. So, you know, you have groups like Google and also Palantir, which is basically, you know, as I've noted in my work, uh, essentially a CIA front that is basically total information awareness privatized. And so Palantir uh, basically has access and has been running a lot of the the COVID-19 health data and other health data held by HHS and also in the United Kingdom, Uh, basically all NHS data is being managed by Palantir as well. And then you have Google having this this big uh, role. For example, they host the FDA's My Studies program and ha- on on Google Cloud, and they have for some time, and you have a lot of these, uh, you know, this revolving door, like we talked about earlier, sort of between the uh, the regulatory agencies and Google and, and Verily is being used for a lot of these new remote trials to get some of these, um, you know, more novel devices, I guess, and like neuromodulation devices on the market more quickly without you know, in-person monitoring and, you know, a completely electronically conducted, fully remote clinical trials. So, and they're teamed up with the Pentagon. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on here. And I think some of that overlap is interesting in the context of this whole, like, you know, misinformation, trying to uh, stop people from spreading what's deemed as misinformation about About health and how that also is, you know, one of the main objectives of this supposed war on domestic terror, Uh, because Robert Califf has been very vocal uh, since he came in. To or it came into this position last year about uh, the need for the FDA as an agency to preempt and debunk misinformation, which is kind of ironic because some of their efforts on that um, front have actually involved the FDA spreading the misinformation. Um, yeah. For example, claiming that uh, ivermectin is not like uh, able to be used in human beings, that it's like a horse and cow. Uh, medicine exclusively and regardless of what you think about its validity as an early treatment of COVID or whatever well before the COVID era it was being used in people so to frame it as you know a horse to wormer exclusively like had been done on CNN is not accurate and the FDA um, obviously knows this so um, it's just interesting that you'd have you know Google Palantir they're big players in the health care system getting more and more tied up uh, with the FDA, and they're a big part of this misinformation crackdown and profiling of people spreading misinformation as well. And I think people, um, you know, might be might want to see that there's that degree of overlap there because once you're surveilling people, whether it's under the guise of healthcare or under the guise of stopping domestic terrorism, I mean, ultimately, I think the end result um, is is the same essentially. And I've also kind of argued in in some of my work on. On the creation of ARPA-H under the Biden administration, uh, which sort of goes back to this Cures Act stuff Uh, you were talking about during the um, Obama administration. I mean, essentially, that's also about getting uh, the mass use of wearables for this, you know, uh, predictive health paradigm and precision health paradigm and all of this stuff. So. You know, it, maybe it's being framed as, you know, a boon for public health, but ultimately it seems to me like the 4IR is just about an insane paradigm of mass surveillance. And they're just trying to see what sort of justifications uh, they can make for it, you know, what sticks and what people, you know, need to believe and need to feel in order to start using that type of technology on and in their bodies.
1: Yeah, I think that the fourth industrial revolution, um, you know, while well, Klaus Schwab and, you know, the people who are his true believers, They describe it as the merging of our personal and and digital cells, right, or quantified cells. But it's really about the the last frontier, which is the mind, right, um, and and also including genetics. So they're looking to somehow be able to predict, and they've been, um, you know, the the U.S. government, at least for a long time, has been uh, created created um, artificial artificial models of the world and um, tried to use that to predict how military conflicts would go or a certain the certain release of information would go. They, they created a computer generated models of, of the world and, and people um, to the finest detail possible, hoping that they could predict the future. Um, really they need a comprehensive understanding of how people think. And I think that's really what it's about. The mind is really the last frontiers and genetics um, for capitalism and, and any, in government and surveillance and control. Um, so that seems to be, to be the, the primary target, um, by merging people's, um, physical and digital selves. And while, you know, they frame it as that's something that will happen eventually and inevitably, uh, the private market and the public private market are kind of already doing that intentionally. So they're, you know whether or not that would have happened otherwise is another question, but they're kind of making that happen now. Um, and as far as as far as the surveillance stuff goes, this is why I think um, it, artificial intelligence is so important and is you know considered to be an arms race at the moment between the US, you know, and and, and their competitors um because it's a lot of information that's a lot of data it's impossible to go through all of that and to find patterns with any sort of efficiency. So you need to apply um, an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm or an artificial intelligence to that to find what you're looking for or to at least flag what it thinks it might you might be looking for. Um, and as far as uh, you know the Patriot Act and the NSA goes, uh, they their current, at least their, their policies were um, to have a black box where all this, you know, depersonalized information lives until there's reason to go and look through it um, because a person can't go and just look through the information to find what what they think is a probable cause to, to look further. Um, but you can legally have an artificial intelligence do that because it's not a person. Um, so mm-hmm. essentially what is, what, at least to me, what seems to be the probable outcome is that there will be many more uh, false positives, many more flags and many more um, issuances of probable cause to look into people even further and, you know, to full to the fullest extent um, than there was before because there's going to be, you know, many more patterns or, you know, patterns in uh, what is that? Um, who's who's writing those artificial intelligence intelligence programs, and what do they consider to be a pattern of, you know, domestic terrorism or um, anything that would warrant probable cause? So that I mean, in you, in the, something that uh, I met, I've read recently from you is about um, Gabriel and the artificial intelligence surveillance software that's being applied through things like cameras and and sound. Um, so it's certainly in the realm of technology, something that is possible, uh, especially if it's all in a readable format in text or in code.
0: Uh, Well, thanks for that really great summary about a lot of really complex issues and how it all uh, ties together. And, you know, a lot of what, you know, we're facing, I think people need to pay a lot more attention to the healthcare space, particularly people who were opposed to stuff like the fourth industrial revolution and its encroachment. Um, on our lives and our government and really society in general, because, you know, they're trying to get a huge foot in the door through healthcare. And I would argue and I actually have argued, I think, um, in some interviews I've done over the past year that Robert Califf is at the FDA right now explicitly for this purpose. Like, as you note in your piece, he's there to remove a lot of these obstacles uh, from this four IR paradigm for being ushered in, you know, sort of in, through the healthcare system first, you know, he's the point man for that. So I think he definitely deserves a lot more scrutiny. And that's why I was so happy to find your piece about him and very happy to have you on today to talk about, uh, him and, and these, you know, more broad, these broader issues on my podcast. So thanks so much for coming on Maddie. So where can people follow your work, um, and support you?
1: So you can follow it on The Last American Vagabond Substack, which is tlavagabond.substack.com. That's uh, where most stuff is. I also post on manufacturingreality.org, um, which is James Jordan's uh, uh, blog there, um, where he uh, also contributes and, and stuff like that. So those are really the main two sources. You can support me by supporting TLAF, Um and And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Space Jelly. If you just search, you'll find me eventually. (laughs)
0: All right, super. Well, thanks so much, Maddie, for coming on. Uh, Really appreciate uh, your time looking into these issues. And I'm looking forward to following more of your work here in the future. And thanks to everyone for listening to this podcast. And uh, hopefully some people listening will uh, take the time to look into some of these deeper issues as well, because they're really, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a extreme lack of reporting, not just on Robert Califf, but a lot of the issues we touched on today. And I think we ignore this kind of stuff at our own peril. So. Uh, definitely, there's a lot to dig into. And, you know, we really just scratched the surface about a lot of these issues today. Uh, and of course, as always, a big shout out to Unlimited Hangout supporters who make this uh, podcast and pretty much all of my other work <laughs> possible as well. Couldn't do it without you guys. So thanks so much. And thanks, of course, to everyone who regularly listens and shares this podcast around. Um, and appreciate you all as well. So thanks so much to everyone for listening and catch you all in the next episode.